Welcome to the Magic Valley Bible Church Sermon Podcast. Magic Valley Bible Church has been serving the Magic Valley for 20 years and is located at the corner of Gooding and Main Street in downtown Twin Falls, Idaho. Our service starts at 9 a.m. and is streamed live on our YouTube channel. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.mvbibletf.org or Facebook at facebook.com slash mvbible or YouTube at youtube.com slash mvbible. Magic Valley Bible Church, built on God's Word. Take your Bibles and turn to Psalm 6. Psalm chapter 6, Psalm number 6, if you will. And as you're turning there, I just want to give a greeting to those who may be visiting with us, and we're expecting to see Pastor Bear. I understand your disappointment. I'm also disappointed. But... It's a blessing to be able to open up God's Word together this morning, nonetheless. And so your, your bulletin is slightly inaccurate. I'm not going to be in Mark 10, but rather Psalm 6, and we'll work through this text together. Psalm 6. The psalmist writes this, including the superscription there. It says, For the choir director... With stringed instruments, according to the Shimoneth, a psalm of David. O Yahweh, do not reprove me in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Yahweh, for I am pining away. Heal me, O Yahweh, for my bones are dismayed and my soul is greatly dismayed. But you, O Yahweh, how long? Return, O Yahweh, rescue my soul. Save me because of your loving kindness, for there is no remembrance of you in death. In Sheol, who will give you thanks? I am weary with my sighing. Every night I make my bed swim. I flood my couch with tears. My eye has wasted away with grief. It has become old because of all my adversaries. Depart from me, all you workers of iniquity, for Yahweh has heard the sound of my weeping. Yahweh has heard my supplication. Yahweh receives my prayer. All my enemies will be ashamed and greatly dismayed. They shall turn back. They will suddenly be ashamed. So reads the word of the living God. May he encourage our hearts with it this morning. I think we all would agree that one of the most important aspects of the Christian life is prayer. However, on the same token, we would likely and sheepishly agree that it's one of the most neglected. Sure, we say a prayer before our meals or we take a moment to come to God before we go to bed, but so often... An in-depth prayer life is non-existent in the life of a believer. And this is much to our detriment. 
You see, we know prayer to be a beautiful time of communing with the living God. It's a time when we align our hearts with the will of God. It's a time when we pour out our struggles to Him, or a time when we praise Him in triumph. Whatever the context of our prayers, it's important that we live in a state of prayer. The disciples of our Lord understood this and their need to be in prayer and plainly asked Christ, teach us to pray. And from that, we get the well-known Lord's Prayer that we recite frequently out of Matthew. Just Just as the disciples were longing to have a better prayer life, we also ought to pursue a better prayer life ourselves. And it can be difficult for us to articulate our prayers. I have found that among the many reasons I enjoy the Psalter, the Psalms, one of the biggest reasons is the instruction that it provides for prayer. The psalm before us this morning, Psalm 6, it sits in the midst of a number of psalms that focus on prayer. And we've already seen a few of these psalms in the past couple years, Psalm Eight, we looked at praising God for his creation. Psalm 15, we looked at seeking to understand what I call the ultimate question in humanity. But Psalm 6 sits in a different category than those. In this psalm here, we, we see a heart that's burdened with sin, a heart that's extremely distressed. One individual calls this prayer, he he speaks of this prayer saying that it's a prayer that's covered in tears. Spurgeon similarly calls this liquid prayer. And that's most notably seen in verses 6 and 7. And it's, it's my desire this morning that our prayers, particularly in times of sin and sorrow, in times of great distress would be like that of David's here in Psalm 6. So so we look at this passage. It's it's the first of seven uh, penitential psalms, as they're called, or confession psalms, focusing on the need for forgiveness for sin. The most prominent of these that you've heard of is probably Psalm 51, the occasion for which was when David had committed sin with Bathsheba, and Psalm 51 is his response to that. You know the language there. David says, my sin is ever before me. I was was brought forth in iniquity. In sin, my mother conceived me. The penitential psalms, the confession psalms, where the writer, be it David or someone else, pours out their heart to God in confession of sin and the need for forgiveness. It's interesting to note, scholars debate that fact, because here in Psalm 6, there's no confession to be found. We don't see a particular request for forgiveness here in Psalm 6, but I will argue that the context, particularly in verse 1, demonstrates that the the psalmist is is desiring forgiveness for a wrongdoing that he has committed in the need of correction that God is giving him. 
This psalm, along with the other six penitential psalms, are often read on Ash Wednesday, which I didn't realize until yesterday, but we're in Lent season, FYI. And the outline of this psalm, it's fairly easy to see. And so I'll work through this slowly, and you can use the back of your sermon insert page or the front of it if you'd like. But I really only have two points here in Psalm 6. We'll see first David's agony in verses 1 through 7. And then we'll see David's assurance in verses 8 through 10. David's agony in verses 1 through 7. And David's assurance in verses 8 through 10. Interestingly, when you look at the the superscription of this psalm, there's not a lot of descriptive information for us. It's for the choir director, that's me. Uh, It's with stringed instruments according to the shimoneth, which most likely means on the octave. The idea is that you have someone singing a high octave and someone singing a low octave. But beyond that, we don't have much more context to this psalm. It's, it's possible that it's uh, taken from when David fled from Absalom. Psalm 3 is the context for that one, and there's some parallels between Psalm 3 and Psalm 6, but there's no way we can be certain of that. But what we can be certain of, the, the focal point of this psalm hinges on the fact that David is in distress over sin. It appears that that God is using David's adversaries as a mean of divine disciplinary correction. You see in verse 7 there, at the end of verse 7, my eye has become old because of all my adversaries. And then in verse 8, he says, depart from me all you workers of iniquity. It appears that God is using David's adversaries, David's enemies, as a means by which he is correcting David. He is is divinely disciplining David to set David again on the right path. In the same way, parents, you understand this concept where you, you will use loving yet firm correction in order to guide your kids along a right path. And God is doing so here in David's life. And David is struggling to comprehend it. For us as believers, this psalm, this this prayer, it serves to answer a very important question, which is, how do we respond when God corrects us, when God disciplines us in our sin? How do we respond to God's correction? I've titled this psalm, The Christian's Correction and seeking to understand what it means when God disciplines us. So let's take a look first at at David's agony here in the first seven verses. David's agony, starting with verse 1. He says, O Yahweh, do not reprove me in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. He begins with, Two parallel concepts in Hebrew poetry. This is what we call couplets, where the first line and the second line mirror each other. They're using similar similar verbiage, similar language. Do not reprove me in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. 
They, they bear similar language. And, and David is pleading with God here to temper his correction. David's telling God, take it down a few notches. Notice the qualifier that David gives. He says, do not reprove me in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. We have to note here from the outset that David is not upset about the necessity of correction. He's not upset about the necessity of this discipline. He's wise enough to know that discipline and correction are not bad things. He taught his son Solomon this concept, and Solomon writes of it in Proverbs chapter 3. On the screen there, Proverbs 3.11, it says, My son, do not reject the discipline of Yahweh or loathe his reproof. The discipline's not the problem. Again, in Psalm 19.18, it says, Discipline your son while there is hope. These, these corrective disciplines are beneficial and necessary in order to grow in wisdom and godliness. Parents, again, you know this. This is something you're teaching your kids. You tell them, I do this because I love you, because I want to see you walk down the right path. And David knows that. He's not concerned with the correction itself, but rather he's concerned with the intensity of it. David's not worried about the anger of his enemies. No, far more, he is worried about the anger of God. And rightly so. No one can endure the wrath of God on their own. Notice again on the screen what Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 10.10. It says, but the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting King. At his wrath, the earth quakes and the nations cannot endure his indignation. Isaiah 66 similarly says, Behold, Yahweh will come in fire and his chariots like the whirlwind to return his anger with wrath and his rebuke with flames of fire. The wrath of God is, is nothing simple to toy with. And David knows that, and that's his concern. David, he, he, doesn't, he doesn't dare question the, the importance of discipline, but in his mind, this, this isn't just discipline to David, this is destruction. David's saying, Lord, I know my sin is wrong, but, but can you tone it back? David's in agony here. Look at how he, how he describes himself in verse 2. He says at the end of verse 2, I am pining away, my bones are dismayed. The concept of pining away there, it has the idea of a flower withering in the heat. Coming from the Midwest myself, being born and raised in Iowa, I'm reminded of the corn when it changes in the fall. The stalks go from green and strong to brown, and they flake away at a touch. They're frail. And David's strength is just melting away here. When he says that my bones are dismayed there in the latter portion of verse 2, the bones of your body, you understand, are, are what give you structure. It's what holds you up. It's the integrity of your being. 
And David's saying his very core, his very structure, his very foundation is shattered. You think of it like a a cold wind in the winter that just cuts right through you. That's the degree to which David is afflicted. It's in his very bones. He summarizes all of this well in verse 3. He says, my soul is greatly dismayed. Paralleling the previous verse where he says, my bones are dismayed. David, he's broken. He's frail. He's weak. His, His entire being is spent. And this is all in regard to the extreme correction that God is issuing on his life. And David knows his sin is great. And in this case, it's, it's bringing him to his knees. It's interesting to think, have you ever realized how the church doesn't, doesn't have any hymns on the despair of sin? Think about that. All the songs we sing with regard to sin usually focus on how we are sinners, but God has redeemed us. There's always that caveat there. There's never much of a focus on just the absolute depravity and terrible nature of sin. So, as a music pastor, I went digging to see what I could find. And I actually found one, and the poetry here is so strong. It says, Lord, I deserve thy deepest wrath. Ungrateful, faithless I have been. No terrors have my soul deterred, nor goodness wooed me from my sin. My heart is vile, my mind depraved, my flesh rebels against thy will. I am polluted in thy sight, yet Lord have mercy on me still. The correction for sin that David is going through is intense. And like the hymn writer, David knows the only place he can go is to the mercy seat of God for help in this. Notice the beginning of verse 2. He says, be gracious to me, O Yahweh. The next phrase down, heal me, O Yahweh. David, he he acknowledges that he deserves wrath for sin, but he desires grace that only God can give. It's an interesting predicament. God is inflicting discipline on David, necessary, corrective, divine discipline, and yet the only place David can go to for relief is God. And when you look at the psalm, you notice how intimate this is for David. Take a look at these pronouns. Oh, Yahweh, do not reprove me in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, for I am pining away. Heal me, for my bones are dismayed. My soul is greatly dismayed. And it's, it's intensely personal for God as well. He invokes the, the covenant name of God multiple times. Once in verse 1, twice in verse 2, and once again in verse 3. And what what this correlation shows us is that David's sin, he, he understands that his sin is intensely personal against God. And thus, 
the correction of God is intensely personal against David. And this this section begs the question for us, Christian, do you deal with your sin like David does here? Do you recognize how your sin, your individual sin, has personally offended a holy and righteous God? Do you understand that? Do you understand the weight of that, or do you even care? David certainly cares. He's in distress. He's he's in anguish. He's in agony. And at the end of verse 3, we see the, the magnitude of that to the point where he can't even get a complete phrase out. The very end of verse 3 says, But you, O Yahweh, how long? It's a broken statement from a broken man. He's, he's looking for an end to this agony. This concept, how long, oh Lord, it's a concept that we're very familiar with. It was actually Calvin's favorite phrase in the Bible. It's working through the fact that that there are times when we are in affliction, there are times that we are in trial, and we're asking, Lord, how long? Because we know, as well as David, that God's chastisement is not forever. God's correction doesn't go on into eternity. Psalm 37 actually reflects that. But, but right now, right in this moment, the affliction certainly feels that way. It feels like it's never going to end. I remember when I was a kid, and I would injure myself to some degree. We had a family friend who, when that happened, and I would be crying my eyes out for sure, he would grab me and tell me, Nate, I promise you, it'll be better before you get married. (laughs) Now, if I had tripped and fallen and hurt myself on my wedding day, that same sentiment wouldn't have worked. But we know that the, the, the affliction is not forever. In the same way that the pain from an injury will go away, God's chastisement, his correction, doesn't last forever. But the key here, like David, is that we must turn to God to seek relief. Because we realize here in this psalm that the God who brings about discipline is the same God who brings healing and grace. Isaiah 19, verse 22, it says this, And Yahweh will smite Egypt, smiting but healing. So they will return to Yahweh, and he will be moved by their entreaty and will heal them. Notice the contrasting character of God seemingly there, where it says God will smite them or strike them, but healing them. Healing and striking, striking and healing. The the divine discipline here is not the end. So... 
David moves forward by, by making an appeal to God. He makes an appeal to God, an argument of sorts, if you will. Take a look at verse 4. He says, Return, O Yahweh, rescue my soul, save me because of your loving kindness. David here pleads with God, Return, return to me, rescue my soul. Bring me out of this chastisement. This is an appeal to God, an argument to God. And, and how does he make this argument? His, his appeal here, the first of a few, is first and foremost to God's character. Take a look at the latter portion of verse 4. He appeals to the character of God. What does he say? Save me because of your loving kindness. David desires to be rescued out of this despair. And so he calls on the character of God, and he uses that fancy word there, hesed, in the Hebrew. It's a difficult word for us to translate. A close translation could be the covenant-keeping love of God. And David is saying, he's saying, Lord, save me because you have promised to be faithful. You have promised to keep your covenants. You have promised to hold your people. Save me. Don't let me go down into destruction. The most prominent example of this that we know is from 2 Samuel 7. When you think about 2 Samuel 7, if you're familiar with the passage, it's when God declares to David the Davidic covenant as we know it. Where God establishes the Davidic covenant, essentially God promises David that he, God, would uphold David. And that through David's lineage would come the true and ultimate king. That's the promise that God made to David. And David knows that promise. The, the, the hesed love of God, the covenant-keeping love of God, the love of God that established that covenant with David, saying, David, I will hold you, and I will uphold your descendants to the ultimate king. That love would be in question if God didn't preserve David. And when you think about it, David knows here that God doesn't change based on circumstances. He understands, God, you made this promise to me. You're not going to change that promise. So keep it. Uphold it. Don't let me go down into despair. He knows that God's not going to change his mind on this. To give you an example, parents, again, I like picking on parents today. It's a really good, good psalm for this. But parents, there's times when, when we change based on our circumstances toward our kids. For instance, you may have promised your son or daughter that you would do something with them or buy something for them. And then you make a decision, whether it's time restraints or behavioral issues, you decide not to go through with that. And those kids come up to you with two words. You promised... exactly what David's saying here. Only he knows that God doesn't change. 
God never changes. God's, God's commitments are much bigger than our pinky promises, to put it that way. God's, or excuse me, David's appeal here, his first appeal to the character of God isn't wrong. In fact, I would say the opposite. It's biblical. When David goes to the Lord in prayer here, asking the Lord to remove the the depths of this sorrow, the depths of this correction, he, he invokes the character of God. David understands his Bible. He knows the character of God. And so he says, God, this is who you've said yourself to be, so don't do this. David makes a second appeal. This time, he appeals to his own preservation. We saw his appeal to the character of God, and this this is his appeal to his own preservation. Take a look at verse 5. It says, For there is no remembrance of you in death. In Sheol, who will give you thanks? I, I want us to note that this This verse is probably the most difficult verse to understand in this psalm. And we'll we'll walk through it slowly. It says there's no remembrance of you in death. The concept of remembrance there, it's a common expression that we see in the psalms, that we see uh, in Old Testament narrative. It points to the praise and worship, the recollection of what God has done for the sake of praise and worship. It's not a, a remembrance like this morning I remembered to brush my teeth or, or I remembered to close the garage door. No, it's much bigger than that. It's the continual recalling to mind, the continual understanding of what God has done in history past to demonstrate his character for the sake of our praise to him. An easy example of this is when God delivered Israel out of Egypt. Several times throughout Old Testament narrative, we see that they remembered what God had done for them. They remembered what God did. And this remembrance wasn't just sitting there and thinking, wow, I remember that God did that. No, it's, it's praising God in the midst of that, saying, yes, this is what God did, and he deserves the glory and praise for it. The book of Deuteronomy which is what we know as the second telling of the law, does this a number of times. It's an intentional, continual bringing to mind all that God has done for the purpose of praising him. So, as a believer, when you look at the beginning of verse 5 here, you connect a few dots and you end up scratching your head. In essence, there. It's saying there is no remembrance, there is no praising of of God in death. You would argue, of course there is. We rejoice in God in death, don't we? We often talk about welcoming death as a friend. So what's going on here? And... Allow me to be very, very clear on this and walk with me through this. But, dear friend, death is not your friend. 
Death is your foe. Death is the ultimate result of man's sinfulness. Take a look at Romans 6.23 for me. There, Clover, it says the wages of sin is death. It's the ultimate result of man's sinfulness. Death was never a part of God's original plan. Romans 5.12. It says through one man's sin, or excuse me, through one man's sin entered the world, and death through sin. Death entered the world through sin. Death was never a part of God's original plan. We also know that, that death is our greatest enemy. 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that. And I'll come back to that one in a second, Clover. And you say, but, but Pastor Nate, hold on a second here. I rejoice in the death of a believer. How is death bad when I rejoice that a believer has gone to be with the Lord? What makes death wrong there? I would agree with you that death, absolutely, we rejoice with the believer who goes to be with the Lord. Why? Because, again, in 1 Corinthians 15, Christ has taken away the sting of death. Now, that verse, Clover, it says, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? We understand that Christ has taken away the sting of death. He's taken away the pain of death. There's no more fear of death because Christ rose from the grave, and so death cannot win. And when Christ returns... Scripture tells us that he will defeat the last great enemy. Again, 1 Corinthians 15 there, Clover. It says the last enemy that shall be abolished is what? Death. And in that time, in, in the new heaven and new earth, when that last enemy is abolished, Revelation 21.4 tells us there will no longer be any death. Christian, death is not your friend. Death is not a good thing. Death is your foe. It was never part of God's original design. It's not natural to God's design. It wasn't what he intended in the garden. Death is an intruder in the garden, if anything. It's an invasion and a result of sin in this world. Death is wrong. That's why when, when the new heavens and the new earth come, there will be no more death. In the sense, God is recreating his original creation where there was no death. And in the new heaven and new earth, there will be no death, but in a much greater way now. Death is not your friend. And you say, but okay, Pastor Nate, you've quoted a bunch of New Testament texts. We're in the Old Testament. And you would be right. Christ hasn't come yet, according to the Old Testament. But that doesn't mean David doesn't have a true hope in the future resurrection. You read David's other Psalms. David most certainly knew that there was a resurrection coming. And his hope was in that. So what is David saying there? Why is death bad? Because simply this, death silences the testimony of believers. 
death silences the testimony of believers. Isaiah chapter 38, verses 18 and 19, has a good parallel to this. It says, Sheol cannot thank you. Death cannot praise you. Those who go down to the pit cannot keep watch for your truth. It is the living, the living who gives thanks to you, as I do today. Death silences the testimony of believers. When you think about, as a believer, what the purpose of your life is, we know that that purpose is to praise God as long as we have breath, right? We know that. We're focused, just like David, on praising God, and when the grave comes, the grave ends that. In the face of of David's enemies, David wants to testify to the grace and mercy of God, but if he died, he wouldn't be able to do that. And his enemies would look at him and say, see, sin has still won out because the grave is there. I want to be careful here. Being a graduate of the Master's Seminary, I might get booted as a graduate if I quote from the Message Bible, but I'm going to do it anyway. We often use the Message Bible as as the butt end of our jokes just because it's not a very literal translation. If anything, it's it's an extremely uh, not dense, whatever the opposite of that is. It's not a good translation. But here in Psalm 6, the message actually conveys the purpose very well. I'll I'll stand over here and quote it just to be safe. (laughs) David says, I can't sing in your choir if I'm buried in some tomb. Think about that. I can't sing in your choir if I'm buried in some tomb. I'm done. I'll go back here. I've visited cemeteries before. I've never heard a tombstone giving praise to God. The graves aren't talking. The graves are silent. David desires to continue to praise God in this life. He he sees the importance of that. He, He echoes the words of Paul a bit in the New Testament. When you think of Paul... Paul tells us in Philippians, for me to live as Christ and to die as gain, but yet Paul tells his followers, it's better for me if I continue on with you for the praise and glory of God. Paul wanted to continue to praise God in this life. He he didn't want to die because he understood the necessity of him staying on earth to testify to the goodness and grace of God. He didn't want to end that. David and Paul are emphasizing the responsibility they have now, just as we have the responsibility to give praise and worship to God, which is what the entire Christian life is about. So David, here in verse 5, he's appealing to his own preservation. He's saying, Lord, I desire to go on and praise you, and if I'm dead, I can't do that. So in verses 6 and 7, we reach the pinnacle of David's agony. Verses 6 and 7, I'm weary with my sighing 
Every night I make my bed swim. I flood my couch with tears. My eye has wasted away with grief. It has become old because of all my adversaries. These verses echo slightly verses 1 through 3, but here they're far more intense. He's weary. His bed is swimming. His eye has wasted away. The beginning of verse 6 there, I'm weary with my sighing. Other translations say groanings. David's anguish is such that his his groans or his, his sighing, it's made him hoarse. And we see that there's clearly no sleep or rest for David in the midst of this chastising. His tears never stop. This is the epitome of sorrow and grief. I make my bed swim. I flood my couch with my tears. He lays in bed at night and weeps uncontrollably because he understands the nature of his sin, the the detriment of his sin, and it causes him to weep. In verse 7, he speaks of his eye. His eye has wasted away with grief. In, in ancient Near Eastern language, the eye was often a reflection of someone's overall health. If your eyes were good, then your, then your health was good. That's why we see in some of the patriarchs, it says their eyes were dim, meaning that their health was failing away. So the eye was a, a demonstration of what your health was. And it says his eye has wasted away here. David's done. There's there's nothing he can do of his own volition to resolve his sin. There's nothing he can do to overcome this correction that he's enduring from God. There are many things for us in life that cause us to weep uncontrollably. You think of the loss of a friend or family member, the the difficulties of life, the hardships of work. I'm sure many of, many of us can resonate with David's words that he spends his night in bed just weeping. But there's nothing quite like what it means here to weep over our own sin. Particularly, particularly in light of God's unwarranted mercy. To to have brought reproach on the holiness of God is something that we can all relate to, right? For all have sinned. We have all brought reproach on the holiness of God, but the depth here in Psalm 6 is what we all need to relate to. We need to to recognize the the total depravity of our sin and run for mercy to the arms of our Savior. Don't think of God as as your enemy when he lovingly corrects you. There's times in affliction where God is, is showing us our sin and we think of God as a distant enemy. It's, it's me versus God right now. I can't stand against him. He's afflicting me. But yet, 
Christian, if you get nothing else from this, get this this morning. Why does God correct us? To bring us to himself. In the midst of your sin, who have you grieved most? God, absolutely. Yet, in the midst of your sin, who do you need most? God. The God who corrects us in sin is the same God who brings us up from the pit in glorious triumph. And that's exactly where David goes next. So we've, we've reached our second point, and I assure you, it won't be as long as the first. David's assurance here in verses 8 through 10. You look at this section, and it's like a, a switch has flipped in David's thinking. In verse 8, he, he stands confidently before his oppressors now. He says, depart from me all you workers of iniquity. He, he knows that, that God has heard him in verse 9. Yahweh has heard my supplication. Yahweh receives my prayer. And beyond that, David is certain of the future destruction of his foes in verse 10. So what happened here? You read verse 7, and then you read verse 8, and then you go back to verse 7 again, trying, trying to figure out, what went on in this psalm? It's not like other psalms, like Psalm 73, where we see that Asaph, he had a momentary light bulb that came on. We don't, we don't see that specifically. We just see empty space there. When you look at verse 7, and then, and then in the space between verse 8, what do you see? Nothing. Someone hit the enter key. So what happened here? From the outset of this psalm, David desired that God would listen and be gracious to him, and then poof, all of a sudden, David knows that his discipline and correction is coming to an end. And I think when, when we look at this psalm, I think the simplest answer is this. David has cried out to God and David is assured that God will hear him. And so in that, there is nothing more for David to do, nothing more in all of David's abilities, which in this case are none, for him to do other than to cry out to God. Saying, Lord, take this affliction away from me. I, I can't do it on my own. I am entirely dependent on you in this situation. So when David cries out to God, he says, that's all the more I can do. David, he, he's not going to change God. We've talked about this already, how God doesn't change, but rather God changed David. God brought David up from the pit of despair. God's correction, although painful, doesn't last forever. And by crying out to God, David says, this is all I can do and so I move forward in you, knowing that you, Lord, certainly will answer. Psalm 30, we see a parallel to this psalm. Psalm 30, starting at verse 1, and I'll actually read the first five verses, and we'll have it up on the screen for you there. It says, I will exalt you, O Yahweh, for you have lifted me up and have not let my enemies be glad over me, O Yahweh my God. 
I cried to you for help, and you healed me. Notice the parallel. This is still David speaking. O Yahweh, you have brought up my soul from Sheol. You have kept me alive that I would not go down to the pit. Sing praises to Yahweh and you, his holy ones, and give thanks for the remembrance of his holy name. For his anger is but for a moment. His favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may last for the night, but a shout of joy comes in the morning. God hears David's prayer. God hears David's plea. David knows that, and he rejoices in that. I think it's best to to close with the words of Spurgeon. Think about this carefully, dear Christian. Spurgeon says, It's better to weep over divine discipline for sin. It's better to weep over that than to never weep at all. I close by leaving you an open-ended question. Christian, are you broken over your sin? Desiring to be in fellowship and communion with God? Are you broken like David, saying, Lord, hear me because my sin is great, the affliction is great, and I need you? Or are you complacent about your sin with no regard for God at all? Do you weep like David? Or do you sit in silence without a care? Let's pray. Lord, our, our hearts are, are like that of David's this morning. We, we see our sin before our eyes so many times. And so we run to you, Lord, knowing that you provide grace, that you provide mercy that you heal us in our affliction, and that it's only you that can do so. Lord, we pray that that you would correct us, that that we would not scoff at your correction, as Hebrews 12 mentions, Lord, but that we would accept it knowing that that correction is for our benefit and for our good, But Lord, our sin is so great. And we rejoice in you knowing that your grace is greater. So Lord, we ask that you would guide us in this understanding. That we would weep over our sin like David, but then rejoice like David, knowing that you hear, that you forgive, and that you provide salvation. Lord, we love you today. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Magic Valley Bible Church Sermon Podcast. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.mvbibletf.org or Facebook at facebook.com slash mvbible or youtube at youtube.com slash mvbible